of the finale episodes of the final ten, this might actually be my favorite. And I kind of want to address why. Hopefully, I'll do a decent job of this. First of all, I love the title. Tacking into the wind. That's <laughs> dangerous as hell. But sometimes it's the only way you can adjust your course. And that's the point, isn't it? This episode is about adjusting course. This episode is about changing the status quo, which is something I am hugely in favor of and, frankly, think Star Trek should do more often, at least more properly. With the advantage of hindsight, these episodes are fascinating to think about in historical context. Now, keep in mind, as I'm recording these, the Picard show has not yet come out nor has Season 3 of Discovery, or anything else that's set after the end of D-Space 9. Now, I'm sure you Trekkers know this, but just to really make this clear, the end of DS9 is basically the end of Star Trek. Voyager kept going beyond it, but Voyager was off in the Gamma Quadrant, and only had brief snippets of what's going on back home. T tiny little tidbits here or there. Otherwise, effectively nothing. And then, of course, there's Nemesis, which is a mess, but also doesn't really adjust, or, excuse me, address anything. So, after DS9, there's Endgame, end and, you know, a few little tidbits of Voyager, and Nemesis. And that's it. All of these sea changes that are happening here, with the Cardassians, the Bajorans, the Breen, the Klingons, the Ferengi, that one's coming up. All of that is fundamentally changing how the Alpha and Beta Quadrant works. I feel like they condensed it too much, because they, they smashed all this into the final nine, or ten, excuse me. But I'm still in favor of it. Let's address these point by point. First, we've got the super virus, which they're still working on. I've already called this thing a plot coupon, and basically magic, and I stand by that. Bashir manages to accomplish... Nothing with regards to even beginning to cure this thing. Bashir, who I remind you is genetically superhuman. Now, we could argue that Section 31 probably has genetically engineered people working for them. In fact, I would be astonished if they didn't. But the fact of the matter remains that he can accomplish nothing on this is just kind of okay. There is one really cool part. He, he loses his temper and yells at O'Brien. Sometime later... There's only like two scenes to the to the virus thing. That's why we're talking about it first, because it's the it's basically setting up for the next or the next next episode. So O'Brien comes in with some rolls that he and Keiko, well Keiko made, and then he is bringing because both of them are concerned about him. And Bashir's like, oh, thank you. And then he says, by the way, about the other day, and O'Brien just says, forget about it. That is such a small wonderfully correct way to do that. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The friendship between Bashir and O'Brien has always been one of the best parts of this show for me because it's incredibly believable. Whoever wrote them in the scenes that they're in actually knows how guy friends tend to interact with each other. I have had moments where I have, you know, really, like, I've, I've done something that I don't, I regret, and I'm, you know, tearing myself into knots trying to think of how to apologize, so I finally reach out to my guy friend, I'm like, hey, so about the other thing, and there, and I've actually had them basically be like, ah, don't worry about it. And that's the end of it. Not because we're not wanting to discuss it in full, not because we don't want to discuss our feelings, but because I'm reaching out to apologize, which he then acknowledges and accepts as the apology. And I'm not saying that's universal, but I have seen that in others, and I have done that myself. I've had guys do that to me, too. I actually had one guy 
literally one, just the one, come out to me and, and apologize for something that he did that really, really, really damaged me. It caused me a lot of very serious harm. And he's like, he, you, I could tell the guy, he was just tearing himself up and ringing himself into knots. He's like, okay, I just, I, you know, I want to apologize for this, and I'm sorry, and I, I, I get if you never want to talk to me, and blah, blah, blah. And the only reason he got all of that out was because it was texts, you know, back and forth. My response was, no, we're cool. <laughs> because he made that effort, because he actually put the action into something and the sincerity behind it. I'm sorry to keep gushing, it's just a, such a minor thing, but I love the dynamic between Bashir and O'Brien. I always have. And, of course, but O'Brien is the one who comes up with the plan, because Bashir is trying to tack, tack, uh, tack, tackle this, God, as if it's another medical case. I hate to point this out, but remember, for all his super genius, he is good at medical science and math. It is O'Brien who comes up with the tactical plan, the strategy. And, well, frankly, that makes sense to me, especially since O'Brien is the one with actual military command experience. So, moving on. Uh, we only really have two other points here. Kira is totally right, and we start to see the problems that the Cardassian Liberation Front is starting to have. There's a lot of obvious tension there. You know, the groups aren't really working well with each other, and there's some obvious flaws. But the whole time, they're just kind of continuing to increase the overall tension between the groups, especially since Damar himself basically seems to have the back of Roussat and those who think like him. Meanwhile, Odo is deteriorating faster. Well, that's convenient. I mean, seriously, considering how... So, for those of you not aware, Odo was not originally supposed to show symptoms at all. If they had designed that in advance, he'd probably have been showing symptoms this whole season, just like the female changeling has been. So, they throw in a line saying that the more you shapeshift, the more rapidly it's, it accelerates, just to help excuse why he's getting worse so quickly. Sure. <laughs> Why not? I'm I'm not willing to, you know, be weird about it. And I get the overall point, and that's going to be a major plot point coming forward. In fact, as I've said before, it's basically the plot point going forward. So I'm willing to forgive it. But I do love Odo and Garrick's dynamic, as always. Garrick, of course, this is actually funny. Garrick actually reaches out to Kira at one point. Although he only does it when it's actually a threat to the mission when it's actually a danger that might cause issues with the mission. That's the first time he violates that vow. I like how he both keeps it quiet, because he understands Odo's need for... <sighs> Kira calls it dignity, and I agree with that. Odo has always had a very stoic dignity about him. But really, and I've talked about this many times before, it's also pride. Usually we say pride is a bad thing, and it usually is. But in this case, I'm actually kind of with that, because... Again, it's about maintaining a certain set of this is what is required of me, by me. That Odo wants to maintain a certain dignity to himself. And he doesn't want to admit this. And I love that Garrick knows him well enough to A, keep that quiet, and then B, when it comes down to it, actually admit the, um, shall we say, more sentimental side of things as he tries to open up to Odo. And doesn't finish, but that's okay, because Odo gets it. And, of course, opens up to Kira and gets it when she mentions it. So, <laughs> before we move on, <clears throat> we have a brief aside with Weiyun, uh, the latest thought, 
whatever the, the brain guy's name is. They've changed him around for some reason. And the female changeling. And she says, Oh, if the cloning facility was still up, I'd kill this Wayun. That right, that one sentence really encapsulates the problem with the founders. I know I've talked about this so much, but this scene helps to establish more than anything else why the founders are the root of the problem of the Dominion. They need to find the family. They need to find, you know, Damar's family to brutally murder them. Uh, they need to target the teachers and several other groups of people. And we need to place civilians as body shields. Note that they haven't actually been hesitating to attack Cardassian facilities. They're just putting Cardassian civilians there as a matter of course. Why wouldn't you put civilians in military installations? That way, anytime they're killed, it's their fault, and it'll... Yeah, once again, the founder makes the wrong call here. This is going to galvanize the Cardassians uh, more than... Uh, like, honestly, if I could just give my opinion, I think the female changeling the founder, does more to galvanize the Cardassian resistance than anyone else. And Wayun, of course, can't say no. And, of course, that's going to be a recurring trend this episode. I'll get more to that later. I want to finish on that point. So, then she walks over and very politely says to Wayun, how long until the new cloning facility is operational? Oh, it'll be a few weeks. Okay. Keep me informed. She says, the actress does such a wonderful job. She sounds like she's ordering dinner. God, that's chilling. Anyway, so, <clears throat> back to Rusat, who, of course, continues to push Kira, leading to an actual altercation, which leads to Garak very correctly and accurately pointing out that Rusat's going to try and kill you sooner rather than later. You would, be, you would do well to kill him first. Now, Kira won't do that because, you know, she's the good guy and she's got her own mor morals and sensibilities, and she's here on mission. Garrick is, as usual, correct on this one. Now, there's a really good scene on the, on the runabout, and I, I love this scene. I've talked before about how I like flawed characters, as long as they're done properly. I don't like characters that are character assassinated. I don't care like characters that are just abstractly stupid, but I like flawed characters. It's it's actually kind of a nuanced thing and admittedly hard to both write, direct, and act. Not a visitor manages this perfectly though, because Damar finds out that his family has been summarily executed. And he has this whole thing, why why would they do this? There's no benefit to this. They had no part of this resistance. They knew that. The Dominion knew that. The Founder knew that. Wayun knew that. What, what kind of organization, what kind of regime orders such raw brutality? And Kira cannot help herself. And just, just, she's just, yeah, what kind of organization, Damar? And he goes, just goes and he's just like, and credit to Casey Biggs. You can just see a torrent of emotion raging across his face as he stomps out. And then Kira, credit to Nana Visitor, Oh God, I'm so stupid. Like, like as she, as she, as the, as the anger, the moment, the temper d deflates. Oh my God, I can't believe I just said that. That was really stupid of me. That's that's flawed, right there. She did something stupid, and she did it in the heat of the moment, appropriately for her character, and immediately realizes and regrets it. Like, oh God, I can't believe I did that. But Garrick, as usual, is right. Damar needed to hear that. 
Damar is not the only Cardassian who romanticizes the past and the great glories of the Cardassian Union. He needed to be shown reality. What you have just suffered is what you have inflicted. And that coarse, harsh reality needs to be shoved into his face. As Garrick says, the truth of this is, hmm, the circumstance of this is more likely to make, it makes him more susceptible to the truth, not less. And that is a lesson he did need to have, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So, Kira impersonates the Vorta as they take over the ship. Actually, they have a really good plan for taking over the ship. And as usual, Garrick is the star, because Garrick is amazing. <laughs> and, you know, she impersonates the Vorta. They just have to chill while they wait for the weapon to be hooked up. And then Rusat starts to draw his weapon. And what's funny about this, this is good directing by the way. There's actually a lot of good directing this episode. Uh, oh, shoot. Who did this one? I looked this up earlier. Uh, this is Mike Vihar, who is, I've actually commented on only a couple of times, but every time he shows up, there's some cool stuff he does. So there's this bit where Rousseau has his gun. It's basically a rifle. So he's got it at the side, and he starts to give his threat, and then he slowly levels it. And I'm emphasizing the way I'm doing this animation here, just kind of slowly... I guess you can't see my second hand. Just kind of slowly leveling the, the weapon at Kira, like, ha-ha! Garrick, by contrast, does this, and just instantly and immediately has his rifle right on Rousseau's face. Just bam, no hesitation, ready to kill. <sighs> because of course he is. I love that contrast. They then argue about it for a bit, and Damar comes over. I'd like to think that it is actually Rousseau who finally convinces Damar that the old Cardassian Empire is dead and should stay that way. Because obviously he already had the truth shoved into his face, and now he understands personally what it feels like to be on the other side of the fence. But it is Rousseau who says, <clears throat> the empire, we, uh, we, we, we need to uh, restore the empire we served, the empire we loved, restore it to greatness. We can bring the empire back to its, back to its stage of dominance. In other words, all Rusad is saying is, we could go back to the way things were. And Damar now actually understands the way things were. And that's what convinces him. And Damar shoots him. No, that Cardassia is dead. And he shares a very long, meaningful look with Kira, who, again, huge credit to Nana Visitor, a lot of emotions play in her face over the next few seconds as she's looking at him like, she doesn't say anything. She just... You know, there's that acknowledgement of, of of the significance of what he is saying and what it means. And then she just sits with Odo as he start, as he dies. He doesn't die here, but he is dying. This is all good stuff. Very good stuff. You know what I like? What makes this episode even better, though? The Klingons. This is one of my favorite Klingon episodes. Especially since it says in lore what I've been saying for years. <clears throat> Gowron, you know, at the beginning of the episode, so we're going to just cover all the Klingon stuff in one bundle. Um, do you think he's legitimately surprised the attack didn't work? Based on all we see, it's actually possible, I'd say it's equally possible that he is or is not. He is obviously trying to slander and ruin Martok. That is a political maneuver for things I already discussed last episode. But he also seems to be a really terrible tactician and strategist and might literally not realize how pathetic and horrible his tactics are. 
Then, he, of course, immediately redirects blame to Martok for failing the attack that he ordered. I mean, it can't be his fault. It's okay, though. He's magnanimous. He will not strip Martok of command. Martok's very well beloved. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not his fault that he failed this thing. I won't, I won't strip him of command. Yeah. <laughs> Cisco, of course, is then brought up on pulling on politics, which I've already actually talked to you guys about. Martok says, why would I ever challenge the Chancellor during a time of war? Boy, that sounds familiar. You know why that sounds familiar? Because I've seen redemption. Worf. Oh, poor, poor Worf. It has been such a long and fascinating journey following this character. This is one of the many reasons I wanted to handle DNG, TNG and DS9 at the same time. Because Worf is one of the few characters who has a massive character arc across two shows. Look at the Worf back in Redemption. Naive and relatively innocent of Klingon politics. He had dipped his toe into it. He still understood a little bit of it since that whole succession thing. But he was still not really cognizant of the reality of the house politics. He argued you cannot possibly challenge uh, Galron in a time of war. This is stupid and ridiculous. And he basically ended up ensuring Galron survived that particular duel. Martok, of course, says the same basic thing. Challenges Worf on this. No, I, I cannot do this. Worf really understands the political reality so much better now, and more to the point, understands not only what Gowron is doing, but that he must be challenged on it. That's how Klingon society works. As I've said so many times, it's about provoking, deliberately, and then seeing how you react. As I, my favorite example is still the most basic one. A Klingon may insult you to your face, and if you decide to insult back and laugh about it, then you've earned their respect. If you slug them and then laugh about it, or slug them and be like, ha ha, you know, or whatever, then you've earned their respect. Like, it's how you respond. They don't mean that insult. Gowron, for all of his political savvy, doesn't actually want to slander Martok. He is specifically provoking him and trying to push him down as part of his own machination. Everyone's going along with it because that's what the Empire does. That's how house politics works. And see, this is where the stagnation and the dissonance comes in. Because Klingon culture and Klingon politics are at odds with each other. I've talked at length about the difference between you know, real honor and fake honor. But the problem is, it's reached the point by this episode, it's probably reached the point a long time ago, that fake honor has completely overtaken real honor, even in the nature of actually starting to usurp Klingon way of life. What should happen in Klingon society is the Chancellor should say, I will do this, and someone should challenge him on that. And then he should respond to that challenge, and then they should move on, depending on how the challenge is resolved, either in terms of words or in terms of combat. But nobody questions it. Everyone just bows their head and says, yes, sir. Do, do, do you see the dissonance? That's why this is such a beautiful thing. And then Esri. First of all, really quick, I am surprised how good as. Uh, Nicole DeBoer, I hope I'm saying her name right, and Michael Dorn's chemistry is. The two actually act great off of each other when they're not trying to have sex. I know that sounds strange, but I mean it. They actually have had several good scenes in the previous episode and in this one where they're just chatting like friends, and it's, it's actually really good stuff. I wrote down her entire speech because I love it, if you'll forgive me. 
I think the situation with Gowron is the symptom of a bigger problem. The Klingon Empire is dying, and I think it deserves to die. Worf says, you're right, I do not like it. Tezri says, don't get me wrong, I'm very touched you could still consider me to be a member of the House of Martok, which is a good moment. But I tend to look at the Empire with a little more skepticism than Curzon or Jadzia did. I see a society that is in deep denial about itself. We're talking about a warrior culture that prides itself on maintaining centuries-old traditions of honor and integrity, but in reality is willing to accept corruption at the highest levels. To which Worf says, you're overstating your case. And she says, am I? Who was the last leader of the High Council you respected? Has there ever been one? Worf hesitates, and can't. And his, his face kind of shows the reality, his answer to that. How many times have you had to cover up the crimes of Klingon leaders because you were told it was for the good of the Empire? Which has been a major recurring theme in both shows. I know this sounds harsh, but the truth is you have been willing to accept a government that you know is corrupt. Garon is just the latest example. And then, nail in the coffin, Worf. You are the most honorable and decent man I've ever met. And if you're willing to tolerate men like Gowron, what hope is there for the Empire? And that is the reality of the Klingon Empire and why the status quo must be altered. Because she's right. The Klingon Empire is actively dying. It is stagnating. In, a, in, in an internalized way, in, in, in a corruptive way. It must be altered. They need that sea change. So, Gowron overtly insults Martok. Martok takes it. And that's when Worf, that's what finally pushes Worf to realize, no, I, I have to do this. And so Martok tries the same trick with Worf. Worf, like a Klingon, responds to it. Puts off the badge, puts it down, and then insults him again to his face. Then they duel to the death. Now, <laughs> Worf's really good in a fight. I know that's kind of a joke because, you know, Worf effect, but Worf is actually pretty damn good in a fight and certainly better than Gowron. And I point that out because I was watching the fight very carefully this time, and I noticed that Worf wasn't actually trying to kill him at first. He wasn't going full tilt. He was doing it more ritualistically. Then Gowron got one good hit on him, and Worf immediately took the fight seriously. And the moment he did, he killed Gowron. Funny, I guess he did get that second chance. Huh. <laughs> So the moment he tries, he wins. Dons the cloak. First of all, can I just... I love that cloak. God, I, I need to find a replica of that cloak because it's just so cool. Um, <clears throat> he honors Gowron. That surprised me. But at the same time, it makes perfect sense. Because Worf, well, son of Moog effect, as I've talked about many times, he is a real Klingon. He might be the only real Klingon. And so he does honor their traditions, for real. Actual, internal, real honor. And so he does kneel down and he shouts out the, the cry for Martok as Martok is dying. Or, excuse me, not Martok, sorry, Gowron, Gowron. Martok's fine. And then he is handed the cloak. Looks awesome on him. And he rejects it. He gives it back to Martok. Greatness is thrust upon you. There's a deleted scene where Worf and... Ezri are talking about it, and Ezri asks, what was it like being at the pinnacle of the Empire for one brief moment? And Worf says, 
I wished my father could have seen it. And and Ezri says, you know, I, I think he did, and I think Jadzia did too, and I think they're both proud of you. I wish that scene had been in, because it sounds like a great scene. Who do you think would have made a better Chancellor? Martok, who we don't know much about, although I suppose we'll find out in those shows that I mentioned that are already up at the time this episode goes live. Or Worf. I've heard fans debate this one for years. See, the debate usually rounds around two separate circles. How good they would be in a vacuum and how good they would be in reality. Because both would have the problem of having to secure the loyalty of the houses. Martok, and Worf points this out, Martok has the advantage of having the loyalty of the military. Almost the whole rank and file. The houses do have to bow to that. So Martok, despite being a lowborn, would probably be confirmed for chancellorship, if for no other reason than the fact that he's got the military at his back. Worf does not have that advantage. Interestingly enough, though, um, I, I personally think Worf might actually make a better chancellor than Martok. If nothing else, I hope he at least advises him over the next 20 years until those shows finally come out. If it's not obvious, I really like this one. We've got some sea changes going. we got a couple more coming up, too. We're really getting down to the wire at this point, aren't we? What is it, three episodes left? Hmm. I'll see you next time, guys. Chow.